Hey everyone, welcome back to the Kaderna podcast. I'm Brian Kaderna. On today's episode, we're doing a part two of the Russian invasion of Ukraine with Greg Stebbin. If you didn't hear our first conversation last year, it's episode number 98, you may want to go back and give it a listen. Greg Stebbin is the author of Does Putin Have to Die, which he co-authored with Ilya Ponomarev, a former member of Russia's parliament who is exiled by Putin and now leads a transitional parliament called the Congress of People's Deputies, which could serve as the replacement government upon Putin's demise. You can learn more about their initiatives at www.rusdep.org. I'll include that in the show notes. So to set the stage for this part two, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken just reported that Ukraine has recaptured over 50% of the territory initially seized by Russia. But Ukrainian President Zelensky just said last month that Ukraine's counteroffensive was, quote, slower than desired. So as President Biden signs off an $800 million aid package to Ukraine, which may include the controversial cluster bombs and potential for F-16 fighter jets delivered to Ukraine, Greg and I today discuss how long this conflict might last, what happened to the Wagner Group in their uprising, and if China will get involved opposite the U.S., and much more. So without further ado, my conversation with Greg Stebbin. Is going to require work and time and sweat and toil. If money wasn't an issue, what would I be doing? Don't worry about it. You'll figure it out. Change is the only constant. The Kadena Podcast. Greg, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brian. It's great to be back. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's crazy because I feel like it's it feel like it's been a long time. Maybe we're getting a bit punch drunk here with with everything going on in the economy and in the world. And, uh, you know, when Russia invaded Ukraine last year, it seemed like it just dominated headlines. And now I think people are, are mentally kind of putting it on the back burner in a way. Uh, can you give us maybe a, a quick update of what's different from when we spoke uh, last time, which I think was in the spring of 2022? Well, first of all, I think you're dead on about that. It's really easy to get desensitized. And, and I have to tell you, that is exactly what Vladimir Putin wants to have happen. That's why he's fine with having this war go on as long as it does. It, in, in some ways, doesn't cost him anything. And when I say that, I say it because, yes, the Russians are losing hundreds of thousands of men or soldiers, I should say. But frankly, he doesn't care about that. That's not a real cost to him. He, he, his, his priorities are very different. So if he can have the war go on, by the way, I'll tell you why there are some theories that he wants his troops to be decimated or go into the meat grinder. We should talk about that. But mm -hmm. the longer this war goes on, the more he counts on that we will just lose interest and then he can do anything he wants. He can take over uh, Ukraine and then he can set his, sight, his sights on other nations. And so it's really important that we don't let ourselves get desensitized because if Putin wins this war, if Russia wins this war, if they get one inch of Ukraine, what does that say to other tyrants and other leaders that would like to do the same thing? It says, hey, Go ahead and do it. It worked for us. It'll work for you. And and number one, when I say that, is, of course, China with its eyes on Taiwan. Mm -hmm. 
and and that's what I want to ask, kind of in that same vein. You know, people. I don't think they're maybe drawing analogies quite yet to you know the war on terror and our time in Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, which was almost two decades. Um, but is it even possible? I mean, could this drag on to something of that extent where it's like, where is the you know the finish line? Well, yes, it could. And I don't think it's up to Ukraine. I mean, in a sense, it's up to Ukraine because, you know, my sense is, and, you know, this is repeated by President Zelensky and everybody in his cabinet and every Ukrainian I've ever spoken with, they're not going to give an inch. So this war is going to drag on until somebody called Ukraine wins because they're never going to admit defeat. Never. If they haven't by now. And they did in 2014. I mean, they that was pretty much a, a bloodless takeover of Crimea. This is a very different Ukraine. If they haven't given up by now, why would they give up now or in the future? They're not going to. But to a large degree, what happens and how long this drags on really depends on allies in the West. You know, mm-hmm. the sooner Ukraine gets more weapons, F-16s, et cetera, et cetera, the sooner they can finish this war. Because Russia's, I don't think, going to walk out or, or leave unless something happen, happens to Putin. Then, you know, all, all all bets are off, right? Because, well, just as we saw a month or so ago with, with uh, the w- Wagner group and Pergozin, you know, people were sort of cheering for him to be victorious by marching into Krem, in, into, uh, into Moscow and the Kremlin. But he's no one to cheer for. He's not going to create a kinder, gentler Russia. He might even create a worse Russia than Putin. So the West is what's going to determine what happens here. But I can tell you, the Ukrainians will fight to the last body and they'll take every bit of aid they can get. They'll use it brilliantly and they will fight, fight, fight without giving up. And I have to say, if you look at this, you called it the I think you called it the Russian Ukrainian war. I'm mm-hmm. not sure that's really accurate because it's you know, it's an it was an invasion. It's the Russian invasion. Ukraine was not looking for a war. They're yeah. merely defending themselves. They're not fighting over disputed territory. They're fighting for their sovereign right to exist as a as a nation. Uh, that being said, I think when you look at this and you realize how much the West has supported Ukraine and how little, you know, we're giving hardware. We're not giving American lives. That's a pretty amazing thing. We should be thankful to Ukraine for fighting this war. Is there a finish line? Like, I think that was one of the things, too, that a lot of people struggled with, especially in the West, was you look at Iraq, you look at Afghanistan, and it wasn't like there was this definitive goal other than we want to create a peaceful Middle East or create a democracy and kind of these lofty visions um, that were hard to define. And and some people said, oh, we got Osama, you know, isn't the war over? And then it dragged on and on and on. So is is there something we're looking for here? Uh, Is it, you know, Putin has to die? Is it Ukraine has to surrender? Or like, is it so definitive that one side is, is truly giving up? Well, let me let me dive into that in a couple of different ways. First of all, it's up to Putin whether Putin has to die or not, right? I mean, mm-hmm. he could withdraw from Ukraine today. That's his choice. If he doesn't, my guess is, and I think we talked about this in the in the last interview, my guess is he is going to die. And my guess is it's not going to be a Ukrainian or a supporter of Ukrainian who kills him. It's going to be one of his own inner circle. Why? Because either they think that's a path to power or 
I think even more compelling if you're part of the Putin inner circle is you realize the longer this guy sticks around, the shorter your own lifespan is. He's going to kill you literally, directly or indirectly. You know, for instance, you'll notice he periodically talks about using nuclear warheads, right? And then Mm -hmm. he stops. I believe the reason he kind of goes on and off with that is he can only talk about that so much before the people in his inner circle are going to react by saying, this guy's serious. I have to kill him before he kills me. So as my co-author Ilya Ponomarev famously says, you know, how will this war end? Ilya says, the last shot fired will be in Moscow. I complete, I, I, I believe that is 100% true. I think it's a brilliant prediction because I think at the end of the day, Putin dies at the hands of someone in his inner circle and then there's some kind of dramatic change. Unfortunately, it may be dramatic change for the worse, not mm-hmm. for the better. And so a question on that, Greg, and, and kind of hitting the rewind button just a little bit. I did want to ask you, and if you can fill us in, who exactly is the Wagner Group? What was that about? Like you alluded to, you know, people were cheering initially. Oh, here comes some sort of uprising. But then you just kind of mentioned, well, let's not be so quick to applaud this character. Uh, Can you give us some background on that? Sure. So the Wagner Group is a private army that was fighting on behalf of Russia, fighting in Ukraine. And some of the most vicious, heinous acts of torture and brutality were done by the Wagner Group. And I have a very strong vision, and I think people will remember this as I mention it, of I think it was the, so the leader of the Wagner group is a man, uh, I don't remember his first name, but his last name is Prigozin. And you can Mm -hmm. Google it. It's P-R-I-G-H-O-Z-I-N or something like that. Or if you Google Wagner group, this guy was in prison, got out of prison, started a catering business, and Early in Putin's career, the two became acquainted and very close, I'm going to say associates, because Prigozhin was always subservient to Putin. And over the years, Prigozhin got very, very wealthy as a caterer. I know that's weird. (laughs) Russia is weird. He was a caterer, food, restaurants. No, he got very, very wealthy because he was essentially an oligarch. He was on the take as an ally of Putin. And his wealth grew and grew. And this was a guy who had been in prison and was not your typical restaurateur or caterer. He's a criminal. He has the heart of a criminal. He was catering as a way of stealing from the Russian government through his friend Vladimir Putin and as a way of building his power. And at some point, he created his own private army called the Wagner Group, which does mercenary work all over the world. It was new to be doing mercenary work in Russia. But the the image that I want to call to mind is, I think it was him, if it wasn't him, it was one of his top lieutenants, went to the Kremlin with a bloody sledgehammer that they had used to beat a Ukrainian officer to a pulp. And they were proud of it. And the, the bloody sledgehammer was a trophy. That's the kind of people we're dealing with here. So when he marched on Moscow a few weeks ago, people who didn't really understand who he is thought, oh, great, someone's going to take out Putin. Someone's going to take over the Kremlin, not really understanding who that someone was. I was cheering for him, too, but for a very different reason. I and lots of other people, we believed that 
the longer the conflict between Putin and Prigozhin ran, the more resources Putin would have to put to it, and that would be less soldiers and less ammunition being pointed at Ukraine. I'm sorry that it only lasted a weekend. I wish that war would go on for a year and a half because it would be another opening for Ukraine to fight back even more successfully against Russia. And by the way, there are some who theorize that the march on Moscow, the threat against Putin, was actually organized with approval from Putin. And let me explain that because that sounds really crazy. Like, why would you have your friend march on your capital and threaten to take it over? Well, yeah. you have to begin by understanding that a lot of what happens in Russia, a lot of almost everything that happens in Russia, and almost everything that is said from the Kremlin by Putin, by Lavrov, the others, it's not, we're not the audience. The audience is Russians. And so if you go and look at, if you followed what happened with Prigozhin at all, or you go back and read about it, you'll realize that march on Moscow made Putin look very, very weak. It really questioned his his authority mm -hmm. and made made a lot of people in the West realize, oh, maybe this guy is not smart, as smart as we had once thought, and maybe he's not invincible. But that's not the story the Russians got. First of all, remember that their media is controlled by Putin. And the story they got was that Putin quickly and easily put down the uprising because he's the super strong guy. Yeah. So to Russians... It looks like a victory, a coup over a coup, yeah. even though in the West, it looks very different to us. And frankly, I think our perception in the West is much more accurate because our media is not controlled and we get a much clearer view of what really happened. So just to, to put some context to this, Greg, and, and as you were talking, I did look up um, the, the leader and I might butcher his name, but it's Yevgeny Pergozin. Yes. And uh, yep. And for whatever Wikipedia is worth, he's a Russian oligarch mercenary leader, a close confidant of Vladimir Putin. And his nickname was actually Putin's chef. Um, yes. So yes. Yeah, the catering thing does come through. And then he was the head of the Wagner group, which is yes. pretty wild. Um, is, he is. He still is kind of the head of the Wagner group. It's the, the state of the Wagner group and even the state of Prigozhin is very much in question today. I mean, there's some people, I think, who are even questioning whether he's alive. Um, so that that turn of events, again, from a Western point of view, was devastating to Putin because the Wagner group was really his most successful army. And he th this quote unquote uprising kind of caused a lot of chaos within the ranks of the Wagner group. So I think he lost a lot of the effectiveness of that group, but that's not what Russians are learning and hearing and seeing. Yeah. So your hypothesis is that this was kind of like a setup where he said, you know, you guys, my, my almighty army, you know, my best of the best come after me and then we'll quickly, you know, put you back in your place. So, uh, but I mean, was the Wagner group actually making like real advances at oh, Russia. they absolutely, they, they were, I don't quote me on this, but I think they were 120 kilometers from Moscow or something. I mean, they were, they were on the march and they were moving fast. So if it was like a setup, then why would they have actually had like true aggression, like to actually accomplish a goal here rather than just kind of walk through this, you know, 
facade of, oh, we're pretending that we're actually going against Russia so they could wipe us out. Well, you have to remember something, and this is really important. Vladimir Putin doesn't care how many soldiers die. And, and, and let me get into it, why he may actually need more to die every day. Let me explain the rationale by that, behind that. But one of the things I've learned in, in the year and a half of, you know, since the invasion of Ukraine is to begin to think like a Russian. Mm-hmm. And they live in, you spent time in, in, in the Czech Republic, I think. I don't yep, know if the yes. same was true there. I mean, maybe by the time you were there, you know, democracy and a free press and the ability for free expression may have changed things. But when you have no ability to express yourself and there is no media, it begins to enable those who are in control of presenting a very twisted narrative. And you won't even know the things that are bad for the leaders. And the things that you do know about the leaders may not even be true. So all of that adds up to you get this very convoluted story. But let me get into why Putin may need as many of his soldiers as possible to die in Ukraine. And let me express it this way. I'm going to go back to the beginning of this invasion. We all know that when the Russian soldiers began the invasion on February 24th in 2022, they were told they were going to be liberators. They were told they were going to be greeted with flowers and banners and hugs. That's not what happened. Going back even further historically, you have to understand that if you're a Russian, you've been told for your whole life that Ukraine, uh, I'm sorry, yes, Ukrainians live like dogs. You know, they, they, they have nothing, they're dirty, they're, they live like animals. That's what you've been told. So you've been sent to liberate these poor people that live like animals. And what happens? You get there and you're not greeted as a liberator. People are shooting at you from every direction. And the next thing you discover is they don't live like dogs. You live like a dog compared to a lot of Ukrainians. Ukrainians, this is me talking now, a lot of Ukrainians live like we do. You know, they have iPhones, they have night, you know, they drive Teslas, they, you know, they go out to dinner. I mean, there's a story in the New York Times yesterday from Brett Stevens, uh, who who was just in Kiev, talking about, like, he's in Kiev and it's like being in, in, in Manhattan on a Saturday night. I mean, people are out having dinner on the sidewalk in restaurants, bars are packed. And 80% of Russians don't have running water. So you've been told these people live like dogs. You've been told you're going to liberate them. They're shooting at you when you get there and you find out that you live like a dog. So let me just finish this because this is important. Sure. If you discover under those circumstances or any circumstances, how many ways you've been lied to by your government, what's going to happen when you go home? Oh, by the way, you're from Russia, a country with pretty strict gun control, but now you have a gun and you know how to use it. You've been trained. What happens when you go home and you start telling your friends and family what you saw? That's that's the circumstances that are ripe for an uprising. So one theory is Putin can't afford to have these soldiers come back to, to Russia because they're going to revolt against him. That leads right into what my next question was going to be is like, does the the narrative of what's really happening, does that make its way from the front lines 
back to the people of Russia, which I don't even know who the, the people of Russia really are, because is it like pretty much they can just send all the men, uh, able-bodied men, into conflict? Like, well, who- unfortunately, there's there's still hundreds of thousands, if not a million or two, able-bodied men. And their definition of able-bodied men is very different from ours. I'm 62. Yeah. They'd send me. Yeah. <laughs> Without even thinking. I mean, you know, in a heartbeat. They would not think twice about sending me. But to your larger yeah. question, do Russians know what's going on? Absolutely not. They absolutely have no idea what's going on. How is that possible? Every- like, is there no line of communication from when, okay, I'm getting deployed to Ukraine, not all that far away, and I'm with, you know, tons of fellow soldiers all from Russia, they have just no form of communication back to friends or family back, you know, not all that far over the border into Russia? Limited. Very limited. And here's a really interesting thing. Um, And I've heard this story about people talking to Russians who left the country, you know, there was a real brain drain or has been. So Russians who live here, as long as 10 or 20 or 30 years, and Russians back in Russia, even when they hear about the atrocities, they don't believe it. And I understand that from a psychological point of view. Who wants to believe that your people are brutal torturers and murderers and rapists? So often when Russians hear about what's happening in Ukraine, their response is, I don't believe it. We're not like that. So there's a lot of things at play here. And look, we're we're talking here on a podcast, right? You know Mm -hmm. why? Because we can. Yeah, freedom of speech, yeah. Because we can, and we've always been able to. So you have to, you have to, disengage yourself from what you know as a world of information and plug yourself into the world of Russia or China or other tyrannies and realize you don't get that information and you've never had that information. So you don't even know what it's like to have that information. You've just been brainwashed from the day you were born. You cannot ignore that because That is a huge, well, first of all, it's right out of the playbook of being a dictator, right? Sure. You have to have have that kind of control if you're a dictator. Yeah. And this is exactly why you have to have that kind of control. So that when you do the most horrible things, you still have the support of your people who don't know. And if they even hear it, they don't believe it. So I guess the question to that is, all right, so there's obviously, you know, all the propaganda. Putin controls every narrative that exists within Russia. But then you have these people going out, and it's kind of like they're going out into the world, into Ukraine, and they're getting introduced to reality. Are they on, like, like how we would know in, in the Army or the Navy, you know, a deployment? Are they at war, if you will, for a four-month period? Or do they just go to war as long as they're able until they get killed. Like when do they get to come, you know, even if communication is limited, when do they get to return home to Russia and say, Hey guys, it's not at all what we thought it was. So they do have contracts, but remember contracts are only as good as the legal system behind them. They're only as good as the government behind them. So I I don't, I'm going to be honest. I don't know the, I don't, 
I'm not the best person to answer your question, so I'm speculating here, and I want to be clear about that. Sure, that's fine. But I, I do know they're on contracts. There's a time period for the contract, but those contracts are violated all over the place. So, for instance, you sign up to go, to go fight in Ukraine, or you're conscripted. Either way, in theory, your family gets paid. Well, guess what happens a lot? Your family doesn't get paid. Well, you don't know that there's lots of other people whose families are not getting paid because there's no freedom of the media. You can't call the, you know, the consumer reporter at the local TV station and say, hey, my son went off to fight in Ukraine and he's not getting paid because if you do that, they'll kill you and or whatever. So yeah. even when people don't get paid, the reports of it are very few and far between, if at all, in Russia. And and it gets worse than that, frankly. I mean, you know, there's been many, many reports and from reputable sources of, oh, your husband died. You got a bag of potatoes. Someone came to your house and said, your husband is dead. Here's your compensation, a bag of potatoes. Jeez. Or a coat. There's, and I'm saying that to really just drive home the point that you cannot understand what is happening there if you're looking through a lens of what it's like to live here. And that's also true of China and other places yep. where there's dictatorships and tyranny. It's, yep. it's so far removed from our world that you have to be willing to suspend your understanding of the world based on what you know and have seen and begin to live in another world. And when you do, it will sicken you. That's how I feel. That's why I went to Poland and Ukraine at the beginning of, of this conflict, because it sickened me. I understood enough to be sickened, and everything I've seen and heard since then has only made me feel more sick. And so do you have any glimpse kind of – I know we're speculating a little bit as far as what's going in inside of Russia, what, what that mood is like, you know, over the border. Um what does Ilya have to, Ilya Panoramov, uh, sorry if I'm getting the name wrong. but I'll, what, I'll help you with that. It's it's a tough one. It took me a long time and I wrote a book with him. So don't feel bad about it. <laughs> so well, what's Ilya's take right now? Like is, if we can kind of gauge his mood, maybe is having some of the best insights to both Ukraine and Russia for us. Is he feeling better than he was this time last year? Worse? Like what's some of his uh, impression? Well, let me start by giving some background, some context, and then I'll tell you what he's working on. Mm -hmm. uh, so first of all, it's, it's Ponomarev, and it is, it, it's simple yeah. once you get it, but yeah. for some reason, it just tongue ties us here in the West. I've had the <laughs> same problem. So, you know, even, even in interviewing him, I'm like, Ilya, just tell us your last name because I can't say it. <laughs> <All right. laughs> That's not me. Thank you. It's not, it is definitely not you. Ponomarev. Yeah. Uh, so let me give a little background. He was a member of the Russian Duma. Um, he was the only member of the Duma. The Duma is like, like our, uh, like our, um, house of representatives. He was, he was part of the lower house or like our house of representatives. Okay. In 2014, he was the only member of the Duma to vote against the annexation of Crimea. Well, as you can imagine, things after that didn't go well for him. So he was forced into exile. He ended up living in the U.S. for a couple of years. He's The other thing that's really interesting about him is he has a very successful track record as a business person in Russia. 
and in the United States and Europe. So he's he's a very Russian Western guy. Um, So he ended up spending a couple of years in Silicon Valley, started a business there, got into finance and tech and well, he's already in tech and then eventually moved to Kiev and is now a Ukrainian citizen. So he's a Russian who is now a Ukrainian citizen. That's not that unusual, by the way. Uh, hmm. Even amongst members of the Duma who were disenfranchised or forced into exile, I think quite a few of them went to Ukraine and became Ukrainian. Uh, <laughs> so I think there's a pretty good expat Russian community there who are pro-Ukrainian. Um, so on the day the invasion began, he actually went and joined the territorial defense. You know, the next thing you know, he's got a machine gun in his arms. Um, and then I could go on and tell you more about what he did right after, but I think more relevant is what he's done in the last nine months. Mm-hmm. He and a group of other exiled Russian elected officials, let me say that again, cause it's a lot of stuff. He and a group of other exiled elected Russian officials. So people who were elected to office in Russia significantly before, I think the year 2014, because after 2014, Russia has not had legitimate elections. So he and a group of close to 100 people who were elected to office in Russia, elected in legitimate elections, have formed a shadow parliament for Russia. So people pretty much like himself. Yes, people very much. Yes and no. I mean, when they meet, there's a lot of arguing and dissent because... They're all anti-Putin and they're all anti-Russia in its current state. They all support democracy in Russia, a future Russia. They call it future Russia that is a democracy. But they have very different opinions about what that should look like, which is good. That's what you want. You know, you want a government of people with ideas finding ways to work together to find the best ideas, right? It's mm-hmm. That's called democracy. It doesn't exactly. exist in Russia today. All right. Yeah. But yes, they're all they're all fighting for a democratic government in Russia. It's a shadow parliament. They've actually met three times in person in Warsaw. I was at the first meeting. It was it was like I felt like I was there when they were writing the U.S. Constitution. And in fact, uh, they have written a new constitution, a democratic constitution for Russia, very, very, very much inspired by the U.S. Constitution. And many other parts of their government are inspired by the U.S. form of government. And, you know, what amazed me was, uh, writing a new constitution, a democratic constitution was a high priority, but you know what the next priority was? A law for free media and free expression. Uh, You know, if, if, if you would ask me what the, the, after a constitution, what would be the most important law you could write? I, I'm not sure I could have answered it until Ilya said, well, obviously it had to be essentially the first amendment for Russia. It's not called the first amendment, but the, the amendment for free media. Because without that, we're not going to be a democracy. And it's really, that's, that's really a clue as to how important media, free media, the free media that we enjoy is to our democracy. And it really is a clue to how you prevent people from having democracy or fighting for democracy. Why are there not people in the streets of Warsaw fighting against the war? Because they're completely brainwashed by the media around them. They don't even, they wouldn't even know to fight because the media is being controlled. So to them, that is one of the most important things they can do is make the the media free. And so the bigger picture is there's this 
uh, shadow parliament for Russia, a democratic to, to, to create a democratic form of government for Russia. Do they have a, a sense, name, Greg? Is there like a yes. formal name for this group? It's, it's called the Congress of People's Deputies. The website is RUS for Russia, DEP for deputy, RUSDEP.org. And okay. I, I have to tell you that um, they're in the process of translating, and I'm helping with this, uh, translating a lot of the Russian text and text of the bills that the group has passed into English. So one way to look at this website is to go to it in Russian and let Google translate it, translate, translate it for you. If that's you go exactly to the English site, just they're did. just updating yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's re when I send people links to it, I usually send it to them so that Google will translate it. And yeah. we're in the process of, you know, translating from Russian to English. But and, uh, if I can I'm hop so, in, I, I know... Yes. I want to get the update from this this group, but I think the elephant in the room is so America is obviously probably the most involved country right now in the invasion of Ukraine, certainly financially. Is America, is the White House acknowledging this new shadow parliament and are they working with them at all? We pause now for a brief commercial interruption. This episode is brought to you by my new book, What Should I Do With My Money? Economic Insights to Build Wealth Amid Chaos, available in paperback, Kindle, and audiobook wherever books are sold. If you're intrigued by how the conflict in Ukraine is affecting the American economy and global economy, what opportunities and threats are being exposed by Russia's invasion, and how such ongoing geopolitical affairs are affecting your dollars, please give my book a read. Now, back to my conversation with Greg Stebbins. It's a great question. So, um... What's happening is, and I, I was just going to get to this, is this parliament really has a couple of key jobs. And one of them is obviously getting buy-in from other countries. So, you know, that's coming from Ukraine, obviously. It's coming from Poland, obviously, because if Russia takes over Ukraine, where are they going to go next? Poland, right? Other Baltic states. And there are conversations happening with members of Congress and, you know, other uh, executive branches, or I'm not saying that right, other, you know, defense groups and things like that about this. So the U.S. has not officially signed on, but that is a work in progress. So clearly, you know, as, as other world governments sign on to support this group, the more and more strength it has. I mean, that's called global politics, right? Or geopolitics. Uh, the, the, the other... I think you said elephant in the room or, or however you said it is, you know, what happens? Well, how does a group like this take power? And, and that was a question we really struggled with answering in the book. Does Putin have to die? And I think Ilya ended up answering it brilliantly. And so I'm just going to kind of paraphrase what he said. Uh, you know, his answer, because I kept asking him this and I was never really satisfied with the answer he would give me. So we kept working on it. And finally, I found that he, had, he, he and I together came up with the perfect way to answer that question. Part of the question is, is there a plan for taking power when Putin is gone? And the answer is yes. Is he or someone going to tell you the plan? Absolutely not. And is the plan going to go according to plan? Absolutely not. I mean, they don't know on any given day if this is the day. Is this going to be the day where they have an opportunity to take power in Russia. 
And they're not going to be the only ones that want to take power in Russia. So, you know, a lot of it is building relationships. Some of those relationships are going to be public. Some are going to not be public because that's how that's how politics works. But the fact that there is this democratic group working to replace the current dictatorial government of Russia with democracy with a democracy should be great news to everyone. And, and it is something anyone who lives in a democracy and understands why it's better for the world, including the people of Russia, should support this. Now, is President Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, is he involved with this group? Because it seems like, at least from what we get to see, that he is the face of defending Ukraine. And then you have America, you know, perhaps leading the way financially and also with the, the weaponry and everything else. We're supporting Ukraine. So I don't think the, the average Joe here in the States has heard all that much about this shadow parliament. Um, how do maybe the three connect the White House? President Zelensky, and then this shadow uh, kind of government yes. you know, that, that needs to be essentially legitimized, I would imagine, by both Zelensky and whoever's in the White House. Yes. Well, I, I'm going to I'm going to just quibble over one word there. Um, you said has to be legitimate, legitimized. I, I don't I, obviously it's best. It will be better when it is legitimized. But I don't think it has to be legitimized because we just don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Right. Mm -hmm. um, in term, Well, first of all, if you want to read more about the Congress of People's Deputies, just Google it. So, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of press about it. I mean, the Christian Science Monitor just wrote a story about it last week. Uh, Ilya was on CNN a couple days ago. I mean, there's an increasing amount of buzz about this. Okay. But, you are, but from a PR perspective, it, Ukraine is the story. Yeah. It's hard to, in the media... It's hard to break through with something that's not about Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And and this is a in a way a pretty radical notion. And I'll tell you something that's 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 really interesting that's based on my experience. I, I hope I don't get hate emails for this, but <laughs> it's it's my it's my view. Um I've tried to have conversations with people in Ukraine about the Congress of People's Deputies, and they're not hearing it. Really? And it took me a while to understand why. They're defending their country. They're not hearing anything other than what do you got for me to defend my country and my and, you know, civilian targets and civilians. They shouldn't be occupied. I'm talking about average Ukrainians, not Ukrainians in government. I know that those conversations are happening, but average Ukrainians shouldn't be paying attention to this. They've got enough on their plates, mm -hmm. but the rest of us should be paying attention for their benefit and ours. Because even though the average Ukrainian right now is just focused on staying alive, obviously having a friendly ally as a neighbor in Russia is going to be to their benefit, even if they can't focus on it right now. You know, you, it's kind of comparable to, you know, there's a violent crime in your in your family, right? That's all you can focus on is, you know whatever it takes to deal with that. You can't really start thinking about other things. And that's, I think, where the Ukrainian people are and should be. But the rest of us should be fighting on their behalf and for the, on the behalf of others who live in, in dictatorships. And frankly, everyone in the world who lives in a free country, lives in a democracy, is going to live a better life when Russia is no longer a threat, but a fellow democracy. Understood. 
and a couple of follow-up questions here. So, and this is kind of sidestepping a bit. Russia, you know, really seemed to have used last year oil as their weapon, that, that that was kind of their economic weapon that they could say, hey, we supply most of Europe, we give some to the U.S., and we're just going to shut it off, and let's see how you guys handle this. It seems like the the commodities market and the global stage as a whole has kind of normalized a bit where we're saying, yeah. all right, we found a way to deal with this. So what's, what's the, if that was Russia's main weapon and we said, all right, we took it on the chin and we're still standing and we're, we're okay. What's, what's the play now? Like you're seeing just recently, you know, Russia obviously attacked the Ukrainian grain terminal. Yes. They, they exited this huge. So is this kind of their, their, their next piece of ammunition to say, okay, we'll go after that and let's see how you handle that one. I'm going to say yes, but I, I don't mean it, I think, in the way that you think I do. So I just saw a story earlier today. I, I don't remember where it was, so I can't vouch for the credibility of it. But I saw somewhere that while Russia is claiming their economy has is down like 3%, whatever the source was, was saying it's more like 60%. Really? Okay. I do believe that they can only go so long with you know, they people used to refer to Russia as a gas station. Like, that's mm-hmm. all they had. And the gas station is no longer open for business with most of the world. And, yep. and by the way, you know, the greatest thing to happen to, to environmentalism this decade is probably Russia invading Ukraine. I, I, I don't mean to be cynical about it, but it that's forced true. all these, you yep. know, Europe... And, and other countries all of a sudden went like, well, we have to survive without Russian oil. How are we going to do that? Oh, we're going to do solar. We're going to do, you know, we're going to, it, it had a huge impact on the sales of electric vehicles and all kinds of other things. The world yep. adapted and in a more environment, I think, in a more environmentally friendly way. So, you know, sometimes there's odd byproducts of a really horrible thing. And, and that's one doubt. of them. Yep. Yeah. So, so your question about is uh, backing out of the grain deal and bombing Ukraine's, um, you know, they're bombing all kinds of things associated with the with the infrastructure around uh, grain and, and and the food they grow for the rest of the world. It, it, I, I think you can look at these things and just bombing civilian targets in general. Just like last winter, they were bombing the the infrastructure that would enable Ukrainians to have electricity and heat. These are all the acts of a bully. There's no, there's no plan to it. It's just, you know, we're going to inflict pain because we have nothing else. There's nothing else we can do. All we can do is inflict pain. Where can we inflict the most pain? I don't think anyone but Putin and maybe a few in his inner circle even think it's going to matter in the long run, but they're not ready to quit yeah. or they feel like they can't quit. And that's, I think, the the scary thing, Greg, is like it's, you know, we have now Biden signed an $800 million package of aid to Ukraine. Uh, they're, they're talking about, you know, cluster bombs being involved here, which there's a lot of controversy around. Yes. Uh, there's conversation about, you know, F-16 fighter jets possibly making their way to Ukraine. And then I read in an article that U.S. officials said it could take 18 months for the delivery of the F-16s. And to have proper training along with that. So when you hear something like that, that starts to kind of introduce this connotation of, all right, this is going to take a while. And I think that is the big fear is like we as the almighty 
you know, United States of America through the kitchen sink into the Middle East for two yes. decades. And what exactly, what could you say we quote unquote won? So I think that's the fear here is like, could we just keep pouring and pouring and pouring and the Ukrainian people just say, we're not giving up. And then the Russians say, all right, we'll just kind of do what we got to and just kind of keep that fire going. And then meanwhile, it costs us an absolute fortune that, you know, we can't afford over the long haul. Well, let me, I'm going to, I'm going to tackle that in two different ways. I hope I can remember what the second one was as I'm talking (laughs) about the first one. Um, You have to remember there's a lot of things going on here. One of them is a war. And another one is politics. Mm-hmm. So if the U.S. says in 18 months we can deliver F-16s, let's just look. I'm not sitting in Washington, D.C. I'm not in a committee hearing, but I can speculate. And my speculation goes like something like this. First of all, Based on experience, we know Ukrainians can be trained much faster than 18 months. And Mm -hmm. you can find all kinds of people debating this on Twitter and other places. Uh, It doesn't have to be 18 months. So that's an outside figure. But part of why the U.S. is announcing it at all is to threaten Russia. And, you know, how, how, how can we continue to chip away at their confidence? Or more importantly, how can we continue to chip away at the confidence of the people around Putin? Remember, if the last shot fired is in Moscow, that's a psychological battle. It's not a battle that went, that's won on the, on, the, on the actual battlefield. You know, we have to win the war in the hearts and the minds of the inner circle of Putin, probably, to end this. Mm-hmm. And when the U.S. announces in 18 months, did you say 18 or 16? It doesn't matter. They said 18, but, yeah. 18, but okay. Regardless. I mean, you know, that they're going to get F-16s. Think about the politics of it. We announced we're going to send them. We announced we're going to train them. Oh, and what else does this mean? Now that the U.S. said yes, Poland can send them tomorrow. Germany can send them tomorrow. Italy can send them tomorrow. Part of when the U.S. says yes with that kind of extended timetable, it's not about the U.S. US ever sending them. It's about, in, in a way, giving this sort of tacit approval to the rest of the world to do the same thing, and they can do it a lot faster. And is that ultimately the the recipe for success here is that we're going to give enough munitions to Ukraine? You know, and just read this morning, there was an article that, you know, Kiev had hit both Moscow and yes. Crimea with drone strikes. Are, are those the things that are going to have to happen that kind of like wake up Russia beyond the propaganda that they're being, you know, filled with? Well, it's it's a it's a bag of things. And though that's in the bag. It's not yeah. the only thing. There is no only thing. I want to get back to the. I said there were two things I, I wanted to uh, answer in your qu- previous question, and I, I want to go back to that. Yeah. You know, for all of the things you read about how much we're sending to Ukraine, and again, I'm not an expert. I, I know what I've read, and I, I try to read credible sources like retired generals and things like that. Mm-hmm. But you have to remember that we're not sending cash. You know, President Zelensky is not sitting there at his desk with these mountains of thousand dollar bills and giggling. You know, when you hear the claims of corruption in Ukraine, we're not sending cash. We're sending hardware. And so far, that hardware adds up to the last I heard six or seven percent of our defense budget. 
That's not yep. nothing. But on the other hand, if we were fighting Russia, it would be more like probably 60% of our defense budget and American lives. Yep. I don't think a single enlisted American life. I mean, there have been Americans who have volunteered and died, but they weren't part of our, our uh, of our military. They went on their own. Yep. I don't think a single American service person has died in this war. And mostly what they're sending, what we're sending them as hardware. And in some cases that's hardware that frankly we were going to retire or already, already had retired. So from my view, and you don't have to take my word for it. You can Google on Twitter, people like Lindsey Graham and, you know, generals and stuff. This is one of the greatest military bargains in the history of military history. And we should never forget what we're really sending and what we're really getting without losing a single life. But no, I agree with that wholeheartedly about not losing an American life or service member. But I think what some people will get stuck on is the the actual hardware that's over there. I think a fear a lot of Americans have, again, if we just go back to our most recent conflict, of course, in the Middle East, there are countless stories of American service members fighting, you know, the Taliban or or fighting in Iraq. And they were fighting people armed with American weaponry from the last time that we tried to get involved. And so I think that's something, maybe you can answer this. Are you aware, like when we bring hardware, we bring weaponry over there. If we fast forward two years and and there's a new administration or something that says, you know what, we're repeating history. We're pouring a billion dollars into this place that's turning into a black hole. Not saying this would ever happen, but if it did go down that road and we said, we're pulling out, it's time to focus on America is there any way to recoup everything we just put over there so that it doesn't fall into the bad guy's hands, whether that's in Ukraine or Russia? I don't, you know, I, I've learned in, in my years to know when to say I'm, I don't know, and I don't know the answer to that. But I can tell you my thoughts on it. So this is my opinion. I'm not presenting this as fact. Mm-hmm. First of all, I'm guessing that in terms of ammunition, it's not going to fall into enemy hands because they're they're using it as fast as they can. Yeah. So there's, let, let me back up a minute. Is there going to be some corruption? Absolutely. I mean, there is, you know, do we have corruption here in the U.S.? Absolutely. Do they have corruption in France? Absolutely. But we don't have the kind of corruption they have in Russia. All right. So I'm not going to tell you that every single piece of hardware that went to Ukraine went exactly where it was supposed to, because I'm sure that, Somebody's done a bad thing, but I don't think it's very much because I think if you're in this kind of war and you've been promised something, you know exactly when it's supposed to arrive and you know exactly where it's supposed to go. And I also believe even if that scenario comes where, let's say, after an election, you know, a new president or even the existing president says, you know, we've done all we can. We got to pull out. Can we recoup all the hardware that's still there? This is just my opinion. But I believe that the Ukrainians will do everything they can to deal with that situation in a very disappointed, heartbroken, but honorable way. Because, frankly, their future depends on it. If they don't return all that hardware, it's going to take them, I don't know how many years, to recover from that black eye. And I think the Ukraine we see today understands what it takes to be a member of the world community. And that, look, if, if they don't give our stuff back and we demand it, 
Are they going to get into NATO? No. Are they going to get into the EU? No. I mean, they have to do everything they can to act honorably, to achieve their goals for the future. And again, will there be a little bit of corruption? Sure, it's inevitable. But I don't think you're going to see mass corruption because the Ukraine that exists today is not the Ukraine that existed even 10 years ago. And that was a perfect segue, Greg, into the next question I had for you, which is, is Ukraine going to join NATO? What's your thought on that? Am I allowed to say hell yes? And I know Ukraine wants to, but do you think <laughs> NATO shares yeah. the same I mean, it's, open arms? Yeah, it, it, it's inevitable. I mean, it's yeah. as long as, look, as long as Ukraine stays on the path it's on, they're going to join NATO. NATO's going to invite, you know, obviously there was huge disappointment a week or two ago when that invitation wasn't extended. It's hard to extend an invitation to a country that's at war. I'm not saying I necessarily agree with it. I, I don't know enough to really form as knowledgeable opinion of an opinion as I could. But yes, Ukraine, the Ukraine of 2023 is going to join NATO. They're going to join the EU. And I'll make an even bigger prediction. My prediction is 10 years from now, one of the great centers of Europe, both economic and culturally, will be Ukraine and Poland. Say that one more time, please. <laughs> <laughs> one of the great centers of Europe, both culturally and economically, will be Poland and Ukraine. Hmm. I'm not saying Germany loses its position. I'm not saying Switzerland loses its position. I'm not saying England. Well, England's not in the EU, but maybe it will be again. Who knows? But I'm just saying there will be, I believe, a huge. The culture of Poland and Ukraine is already spectacular. It's just little known to us in the West. Yeah. And and unfortunately, Russia's bombing the crap out of it, which is really heartbreaking. Of course. Uh, but the economies of these two countries, I mean, Poland's economy over the last 10, 20, and 30 years, its growth and development is is stunning on its own. But I think in partnership with Ukraine, a free Ukraine, a, a Ukraine that is not at war, I think it's going to blow our minds. And I can't wait. That, yeah, that would be a beautiful thing. I think we'd all like to see. And just to piggyback on that last question of, you know, Ukraine joining NATO, I guess one of the fears probably America and probably a lot of, you know, the Western world has is if they do take kind of this true alliance with Ukraine, does that imply that then we have to put up not just money and not just weapons, but actual service men and women? Do you think would we ever go that route? I mean, I know, I know you're not, you're not the president right now. Um, <laughs> Nor am I likely to be in the future. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, could you see that? Could because I feel like that's just the thing that no politician wants to get their hands dirty again with what happened in Afghanistan and Iraq. Right. And certainly, the way that we exited. Um, I mean, most people would consider that like a catastrophe. The way that that ended. So would we ever actually put boots on the ground again? Because I feel like that would be, you know, opening Pandora's box. Well, let me open a different Pandora's box. Yeah. What if in 10 years, Ukraine is a member of the EU and NATO, and so is Russia? 
But the only way that that would ever happen, obviously, is if Russia is a, a completely different Russia than we know. Yeah, and that's a, that's it's inevitable. Russia, yeah. the Russia we know today, I, I, I can't give you a timeline. I hope it's sooner than later. I mean, this afternoon would be fine with me. But the Russia we know is not going to survive this war. It's not. It can't. There's and too. I think, it it just can't. There's there's no way. I think the only way to to kind of just play devil's advocate there. I think the only way they would have a fighting chance is if China decided to step up for them. And it seems like from everything I read, everything I hear, that there's that they want nothing to do with that. That that would have no upside for China, other than maybe more oil if they want it. Um, it, it would you agree to that? That that that's the only way they have a fighting chance is with Chinese assistance. Yeah. And it breaks my heart that today it's being reported that China has been supplying Russia with weapons. So, you know, China is always unpredictable. Uh, but yes, I do agree with what you say, but I, I don't think I'm an optimist at heart. I, I don't think I just, can't, I, I don't, I don't think China's going to go down that road because I think the cost is too great for the little bit of reward. And and look, who leads the world in 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 uh, electric cars for instance? In solar power, China. How important is Russia's oil to a country that's trying to disassociate itself with oil? That's not a future. Yeah. And so maybe to kind of round things out here because there are a lot of questions i feel like we could almost have a part three to this (laughs) Um, but for the sake of time i think that the one thing every listener would like i mean you're probably the most knowledgeable on the subject at least that i personally know um if you had to put on you know your hat you had you had your crystal ball in front of you when do you think this would end if you could throw us a a month or a year is probably more fair (laughs) Hopefully well, not a decade. <laughs> we're we're recording this on on July twenty fourth. Am I allowed to say that? Is that okay? Yep, that's fine. So I'm going to say July twenty fifth. I mean, I'm being I'm I'm saying that in jest, but I don't <laughs> I don't think it's. I'm not sure Russia has much time left. I'm not sure Putin has much time left. I think, I think, what we see every day is more and more desperation. And I think at some point, things just start to break down. And I don't know where where that second wind is going to come from, because Ukraine gets more and more support as Russia gets weaker and weaker. And I'm not a, I'm not a, you know, a war historian, but, but I do know in, in experience in life that in the human body, in business ventures, in other kinds of organizations, there comes a point that's a point of no return. You know, you may not be dead, but you may be the last one to know that you're not dead, right? Yeah. And I think Russia's closer to death. Putin's closer to death. I don't mean necessarily physical death, but political death. I think they're closer than they are to having a second shot. So I'm going to say months. Okay. That would be awesome. It it, would be awesome. Yep. I think we'd all welcome that, you know, with, with open arms. I guess my great fear as, as I'm just kind of digesting all this information you're giving us is if Russia is kind of near that end point, but in reality, they're almost just a pawn for China. 
Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of the, the huge fear is what if China says, you know what, we'll match the U.S. dollar for dollar. What they go to Ukraine, we'll go to Russia and we'll just keep the U.S. and the West busy. With can I can, this. can I go ahead? I'm sorry. I shouldn't. Even no, I was just going to say that that's kind of, you know, when you kind of look at both sides and what's the happy outcome, but what's the sad or the scary outcome? That's kind of what I see on the scary side is if they've kind of seen like, all right, this is the weakness of the U.S. is that they can get dragged into things that are noble and are necessary, but they're extremely costly and they don't have a finish line per se, that that could almost be like a weakness of our structure. And so I don't know if that's a way that China could exploit us and say, hey, you know, we'll just bog them down. And then we'll be free to go pursue whatever it is we want to do economically around the globe while we've kind of got our hands tied in another conflict. I, I, I'm, I'm going to take a shot at this. That's not something I've thought about. So I'm thinking this as I say it. The words are coming out of my mouth, uh, you know, unscripted. That's fair well, enough. Everything I've said has been unscripted. But this is I'm out. I'm out on the tip of my board on this. All right. But I'm going okay. to take a shot. Here's it. It's the problem with that scenario. If you're China is see if China was, I'm sorry, if, if, if you, if Russia was fighting the U S and they were equals, which they're not, what you said would make sense because China's support could rise an equal to far above the opponent. Because of corruption, because of their, because of all the things that are wrong with the Russian way of life, corruption, lack of information, lack of loyalty, lack of, what's the word, lack of um, patriotism for all, I mean, I, there's a hundred reasons and I'm not a Russian. I wish there was a Russian here to kind of fill in the gaps for me. But for, for all those reasons, China's support, let me, let me, let me throw an analogy out here. China's support of Russia, to the extent that you've described, would be like buying the most broken-down 57 Chevy you could find and painting it. It's still a piece of crap with a paint job. Or, as Sarah Palin said, it's putting lipstick on a pig. Mm -hmm. Russia is not—there's no there there. It's just a broken, corrupt piece of crap. And you yeah. can't fix it by throwing money at it. You can't fix it today or next month or in three months to win a war by throwing money at it. It takes time. And that's been one of Russia's biggest problems here is they don't, you know, they're using tanks from 40 years ago and guns from 40 years ago. Their whole system is broken down. Why? Well, a lot of it has to do with corruption you know they've spent all this money on military but where did the money go it didn't go towards tanks and weapons it went in an oligarch's pocket or it went in putin's pocket you can't fix that overnight so if china wants to invest in russia they can only invest in the next war but there's not going to be a next war if ukraine wins and there's a new and there's a new russia and what does that create in terms of conflict with china i don't know i don't think we i can't tackle that one in my head today yeah. But, all, but I do believe there can be a new Russia because the one that exists is a 50 is the most rusted out piece of crap 57 Chevy you could ever find. And everything you said, I think, makes perfect sense. 
I heard you loud and clear. And, and I think if we were gambling on this, I would say if, that Russia does lose in this and and it does kind of have that victory for us. I guess what I was saying about China is I don't think at all they're saying, oh, let's match the U.S. dollars and see if Russia can win. I don't think they care at all if Russia wins. I, I think they know Russia's mm. going to lose, but they would rather see Russia lose over six years as opposed to Russia lose in the next three months. Um, so just if, because if, of the drag that creates for us. If this makes me a, you know, a brilliant strategist, you know, I'll, I'll take all, all awards and accolades, but you know what, if I'm the U S and I hear we would never do this, of course, but if I heard Russia was going to pour that kind of, if I heard China was going to pour that kind of support into Russia, I'd be so happy because it ties up China. With no result. Yeah. It's a terrible investment. So China, if you want to do that, you go for it. You get my seal of approval. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's, we really can get into the nitty gritty here. (laughs) It's almost then you're asking the question, like, do we need $3 to beat one Chinese dollar in this conflict? Like, or on the flip side, is China putting up $1 and us having to put up $3 for Ukraine, maybe because Ukraine requires 3x support what Russia does to beat them back and then win, you know, is there a disparity there that they can take advantage of? Well, uh, but there's a big difference. Ukraine is capable of winning, you know, and that's, they've proven that over. If you look at this, if you look at this war with Russia and you don't see the American Revolution, you got to go look again. Yep. This this is this is those revolutionaries fighting England, but 10 times worse. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that's a good analogy there. And because I know so much of the narrative we heard going back, you know, five, 10 years ago in the Middle East is that we wanted that. We wanted the American Revolution in Afghanistan. But in reality, it seems from what we heard that they just didn't have those founding father types that were fighting back so much. And as soon well, as it was over, they laid down their arms and gave it back to the Taliban where right. you're and, correct. And the that Ukraine is fighting tooth and nail. And again, yeah. I'm, this is, you know, I'm a little out on the tip of my skis here, but you know what? There's a huge cultural difference between the middle East and Ukraine. Yeah. You, you know, you, every Ukrainian, for instance, when they were pouring out across the border into Poland, you know what they all said? I want to go home. I want to go back. They were leaving because of the uncertainty. But the minute there was the, un- they were leaving because it seemed at the time like that was the best thing to do for their country to remove the civilians so they wouldn't be in harm's way. What happened once it was obvious that Ukraine, I'm going to say, had an upper hand because they have. I mean, the minute it was pretty safe to go home they went home not all of them but millions of them did because they want to be there they want to support their troops they want to fight if they can they're going to fight to the death down to the last grandma that's not the culture of the middle east and culture counts a lot here because russia doesn't have the culture of ukraine either and as many people have said you know you fight a lot harder when you're fighting for your own soil than when you're fighting for someone else's. And, oh, by the way, to go back to something I said earlier, you found out that you're not a liberator and that you would rather live like a Ukrainian than a Russian. That's not a great morale-building position to be in. 
Yeah. So, yeah. Go ahead. So China could invest, but I'm sure the reason they haven't invested a lot in Russia is because they realize it's a bad investment. It's throwing money away. Yeah. And there's there's so much I could unpack with this that, that kind of comes to light <laughs> as you're saying all this. And I know what we, the, the media conversation we just had kind of sparked with the analogy to the Middle East. And that's something I talk quite a lot about in my book was, you know, in the Middle East, so many of their governments are tied to religion first. Yes. That that could be another hypothesis, especially like in Afghanistan, that if you took someone who's Afghani and, and they're putting, you know, Islam on the pedestal above a country, they may not care so much. Okay, do I have to go from Afghanistan to the next door neighbor? Whereas Ukraine seems much more driven by the national pride and yes. and, and being they want to be in Ukraine, like you just alluded to, that that is home. That that could that they're not so comfortable just going over to Poland or to another country. You cannot forget that the Ukrainians have had. Is it two or three? Two or three revolutions in the last 30 years? Every 10 years, they fight for their independence. You know what that creates? People who value their independence. They'll sure. die for it. And you can't have that kind of independence in most countries I can think of in the Middle East because you're never going to get it unless yeah. there's a change. Correct. Correct. So much here. I think a lot of people, <laughs> one of the best things they can do is go to that website that you had mentioned, which is, I believe it was R-O-S-D. No, R it's, yeah, it's R-U-S or R-O-S. I prefer R-U-S for Russia. R-U-S-D-E-P dot org. It's Correct. the Congress of People's Deputies. Yep. Yeah. So hopefully everyone tuning in, if they want to learn more, can go check that out because that could be a little glimpse into the future, perhaps, of what Russia will look like. Oh, let's give it a bigger endorsement than that. Let's just call <laughs> it the future. Can we just call it the future of Russia? I hope you're right. I certainly <laughs> hope you are right. I, you know, you're going to have to invite me back so I can work on you more because you're not, <laughs> you're not, you're not 100% wholeheartedly prepared to sign on, and I have to win you over. No, I am. It's just I, I am an optimistic, but I'm also a realist. And I look at all the different angles here. And, and if things don't go as planned, what could that look like, too? Yeah. Um, so that's the only reason why for some of the pushback. So one one bonus question, and then we're going to wrap it up. I know you're busy. Bonus material here. We don't know how Vladimir Putin is doing health wise. You hear lots of things, especially over the past year through little videos that you get to see that he doesn't look so good. Yeah. What does that spell for all of this? And I was just thinking earlier in our conversation of like Berkshire Hathaway and, and Warren Buffett, where so many people have pointed to someday, you know, Warren, knock on what he's doing great, but someday if he's not here, what happens to Berkshire Hathaway? What's the succession plan? You don't really hear anything from the Russian side about that, that which I think would be smart of Putin to say, hey, don't get excited that I'm not in good health because... I've got a number two here that's my clone, which you don't really hear that. Um, that's a whole other conversation we don't have to get into. But do you have any idea how Putin's doing health-wise? Have you heard anything lately? Well, or has I'm Ilya gonna, I'm said anything? Yeah, I'm going to answer, address a different part of what you said. Okay. Um, and this, we talk about this at length in the book, by the way. The book is, uh, Does Putin Have to Die? So here's the thing you have to understand about Putin and many dictators. Uh, Putin is what's called a personal dictator. It turns out if you're a political scientist, there are different kinds of dictators. 
a personal dictator is someone who creates a dictatorial government or, or organization around themselves and for themselves. And that's really important because when you think about that, you begin to realize if it's a personal dictatorship, there is no succession plan. Because who you might pick as your successor has to be really good and really smart and really strong. But if you're a personal dictator, you don't ever let anybody really good and really smart and really strong around you. You kill those people because they're a threat to you and your personal dictatorship. So when you look at Vladimir Putin and the people around them, around him, excuse me, they're terrible. They're weak. They're dumb. They're useless. And that's by design. That's what a personal dictator does. So you're never going to hear about a successor to Putin unless Putin is dead. Hmm. He's never going to name a successor. As for his health, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be too concerned about it. I mean, if look, he's he just turned seventy on October seventh this year. Yeah, I thought he was uh, older last than year. That. Yep. Yeah, he's seventy. Um, look, when you're seventy, you know you're you're in the range, right? He's going to die someday. Yeah. He's going to die because the last bullet fired is in Moscow, or because he's an old guy, or because he has a heart attack, or because yeah. who knows? Don't count on that. That's, yeah, that's gonna, not how this is yeah. going to end. And it's also important to know. Russia has spent a lot of money on, what is the word for it, um, age extension. He's got a lot of really good doctors at his disposal. And probably the reason they've spent so much on age extension is because he knew he was getting older. It was probably all about him. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, uh, I don't think that's something we can bank on. I, I thought he was older. I thought he had more significant health issues, but. He may, he may have health issues. But yeah. they're, you know, they're not going to stop him until the day he's dead. Yeah, I think that's spot on. Yep. And just for context, I mean, our president's 80, our right. former president, 79, who's I think, 77. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, 70 the world is, is dominated old. by old guys. I'm <laughs> close to it? being an old guy myself. So, you're you know, too young. I, I, you're too young, Greg. I'm not you got that me, young. You got another eight <laughs> years before you can uh, put your hat in the ring. <laughs> well, that's true. But uh, I'm not putting. But anyway, I mean, it's, you know, it's a legitimate question. It's it's not going to matter unless, you know, he's dead or, you know, has a devastating stroke or something like that. And it's yeah. it could happen to any of us. So you shouldn't bank on True. it happening to True. him. Well, thank you so much for making the time again, Greg. This was uh, extremely enlightening. A great round two, a great update on the Russian invasion. And um, I got to say, even even looking at the other angles, I think people can walk away from this episode with a real sense of optimism. And that's exciting because not every episode can bring that, but I think <laughs> at least you've done it here where, where even when I try and look at what could go wrong, it does seem like there's overwhelming uh, favor on the good side. We'll say. Yeah. Every day I get up and I think I'm tired of this war, but if I'm in Ukraine, I don't have the luxury of being tired of this war. And, you know, there's nobody more optimistic about this than, than the people of Ukraine. Yeah. And I'm going to vote with them every time. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And everyone, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Kaderna podcast. Today, we had the pleasure of speaking with Greg Stebbin. And please leave us a review. Please subscribe. And we will see you next time.
This podcast is intended for the general public and for informational purposes only. The show does not provide any recommendations or investment advice regarding any specific account type, service, strategy, or product, or to otherwise act in any fiduciary or other capacity. Please contact a financial professional for guidance and information that is specific to your situation. Brian Kaderna does not provide tax or legal advice. Please contact your accountant or legal advisor to discuss your situation. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or Kaderna Financial Team, and opinions stated are their own. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. References to specific securities, asset classes, and financial markets are for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a solicitation, offer, or recommendation to purchase or sell a security. Brian Kaderna is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, OSJ, 300 Broadacres Drive, Suite 175, Bloomfield, New Jersey, 07003, phone number 973-244-4420. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Kaderna Financial Team is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. California Insurance License Number 0K04194.